crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Nachtigall. For today's program, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk to archaeologist Christopher Eames, and together we're going to go through the top 10 discoveries in biblical archaeology from 2021. I really do hope you enjoy this program. If you want to request again our magazine, which goes through a lot of these discoveries in a bit more detail, far more detail than we can discuss here in the next half an hour, please write an email to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. As I said last week, we will be coming out with a new magazine entitled Let the Stones Speak. This is a magazine, again, that's going to be for free, just like Watch Jerusalem, and it will replace uh, Watch Jerusalem. But if you sign up for the Watch Jerusalem uh, magazine, your name will go directly onto the Let the Stones Speak uh, magazine mailing list uh, as well. Okay, now to the top 10. Well, here we are again at the end of another year, and we've got our top 10 discoveries in biblical archaeology this time of 2021. As per usual, I'm joined by Christopher Reams. Thanks for helping out. It's a pleasure. So what we're going to do for this is I'm going to take some of them, you'll take some of them, and then we'll see how we go and feel free to interject if you disagree with some of my commentary (laughs) or are yours. Uh, We're going to start from number 10, the least important uh, in terms of or how we deem it importance in terms of importance going down to number one, the most important discovery of 2021. The first discovery here relates to King Herod's staircase and a gold ring. These are actually discoveries that were unearthed, let's say, or first excavated back in the 60s and 70s by Professor Benjamin Mazar, but only a a recent interpretation of this discovery uh, came out this year at the start of this year with the publishing uh, of a book entitled Over the Crossroads of Time, Jerusalem's Temple Mount, Monumental Staircases. This is the last work by Dr. Elot Mazar before she died earlier this year. And technically, I guess people would be most familiar with Robinson's Arch. That is what the, the, the staircase I think is mainly known about. Again, after a scholar from a hundred or so years ago that first came across this archway. But what has really come out is as Elot Mazar went over the excavation results of her grandfather, she found out that putting a lot of data together that even her grandfather didn't have time to really synthesize uh, towards the end of his life as he was getting sick. Um, she recognized that it, this is not an archway that just led, that led to the, the Temple Mount going down one way and then turning to the, to the left, but actually spread over four different directions, which would make it absolutely unique, a unique staircase uh, architecturally in the ancient world. And so we've given that number 10 and also a shout out to Dr. Mazar, of course, because uh, she's no longer with us uh, as of this year. And so that's one part of the discovery. And also this really amazing baby ring, really tiny ring would have fit onto a baby's finger. Uh, it has an inscript or inscribed on it. It has an artistic representation of a menorah. So this is from 2000 years ago a baby's gold ring with a menorah inscribed on it found just uh, in the area really close to the Temple Mount. So that's our number 10, and Chris, number 9. Sure. Uh, I will make a comment as well, just how amazing it is that these came out. I think it was a month before Dr. Mazar died, this final publication. So, And she made a big part of her life publishing her grandfather's unpublished works, and so that 
you really see that right up until her death. Just um, really admirable to see the way that she uh, kept working right to the end there, publishing not just her stuff, but her grandfather's as well. Okay, on to number nine. I will say as well, going into these uh, next couple, that uh, not necessarily the scientists themselves as relating to these discoveries connected them with the Bible, but some of them do have quite an interesting connection to the Bible if you dig a little bit. And that's what we've done over the past year, um, going through some of these discoveries, not necessarily a biblical connection that's been brought out by the original study. So you'll see that with this next discovery. This is Jabel's cattle cult. Uh, I think his name pronounced in Hebrew is more like Yaval, but Jabal will go with that for our English-speaking audience. So this is a six-person team of researchers from Australia, University of Western Australia. That's where I'm which, from, yep. FYI. <laughs> I almost went to UWA. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> shout out to them, University of Western Australia, six-person team there. This is in April. They published a research article in the journal Antiquity, identifying monumental rectangular stone structures that were scattered throughout northwest Arabia. Uh, they're known as mustatils, uh, really long rectangular structures, uh, kind of like a, a, a big stone border, low stone border structures, uh, known as mustatils. They identified them uh, solidly as part of a prehistoric cattle cult. So this was something that was... Um, and by cult, what do you mean? Had a religious function? Yeah, or? some kind of religious uh, worship, ritualistic function. So this was suspected already. Uh, there had been an article about this, I think, months before this research finally came out, um, pointing to this as belonging to a cattle cult. There was some debate. People knew that it had something to do with cattle because... You have all of these cattle bones in the area. You've got artistic depictions of cattle. But one theory was that, okay, these, this is just a cattle pen type thing. Uh, so what these specific researchers were looking at were was the uh, layout of these pens, if they could have feasibly held cattle as a kind of farming method. And they determined that that wasn't the case. It was more of a pr processional type thing. It couldn't have held uh, farming style uh, served as, as in a farming style situation. So they were able to, to calculate various um, dimensions and such based on that. And they were able to determine that it's part of a prehistoric cattle cult. And they, they named it the first large-scale monumental ritual landscape anywhere in the world and the earliest evidence for cattle cult in the Arabian Peninsula. And so that's really interesting, pairing it up with an early biblical account uh, in Genesis 4, verses 19 to 20, you can, uh, well, I can read it myself uh, here. Uh, just put a marker in there if I can get to it. Uh, Genesis 4, uh, we read here, And Lamech took of him two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bared Jabal, and he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. So the word tents there is uh, the same word used for tabernacle. It's related to ritualistic uh, worship. And then cattle is mentioned there as well. So for, for millennia, actually, Jewish commentators have linked this to the first institutionalized idol worship. Hmm. And this is often associated with this area of the Middle East as well. So it's really interesting that you have this evidence come forth from this area of the first institutionalized 
ritual landscape anywhere in the world, and it relates to cattle, just right. as in Genesis 4. Okay, and then moving into number 8, uh, we have our Abrahamic applied geometry. So 130 years ago, uh, scientists discovered the oldest example of applied geometry in the world. Uh, this was a, um, this was initially, it was, this tablet was discovered 130 years ago. It was only just discovered by again an Australian scientist, Dr. Mansfield, to relate to applied uh, geometry. So the first, the earliest example of applied geometry anywhere in the world, I think it dates back to 1700 BCE, maybe a little bit earlier than that. The artifact is known as SI-427. It's a circular tablet. Uh, it dates to the old Babylonian period. And on the face of this tablet, you had these rectangles and triangles and various uh, bits of text around them. And so this hadn't been properly discovered until this past year. And Dr. Mansfield's work, he went through it, he, he studied it carefully and realized that it contained uh, Pythagorean triples and was actually part of uh, a land survey, dividing up land and using the Pythagorean theorem to do so which, of course, Pythagoras wasn't around till a 1,000 years plus right. later. So it shows that the Babylonians really were advanced at that. And then pairing that with classical historical accounts and the biblical account, uh, you've got all these historians who actually attest to Abraham being kind of a mathematical father of Babylon, of the Babylonians. You've got uh, the Babylonian historian Berossus, Jewish historians Josephus and Philo, historian Eupolemus, all attesting to Abraham as that father of mathematics. And there's a really cool hint at it as well in uh, Genesis 23, talking about Abraham buying a plot of land from, Can from a Canaanite. The Canaanite just wanted to give it to him mm -hmm. for free. Here, it's yours, take it. But Abraham was very specific. Uh, I'll pay you such and such money for it, and we're going to really carefully survey this land. So it really shows that Babylonian emphasis on land surveying, uh, which, which is a really cool connection to this tablet from this period. And I will say that if people are listening to this and maybe on the audio only, definitely watch it on YouTube and we'll have some photos up uh, so that you can see what we're talking about. And of course, in the show notes of today's program, we will have all the links to our articles on each of these topics so that you can uh, just make sure these historical details uh you can fact check them and, and look that up yourself okay now we're up to number seven and we're going to be talking about something that happened in jerusalem this is the amon hanatsiv toilet uh this was discovered in an excavation that we've talked about i guess for the last couple of years i think last year it might have been now number two or number three discovery this palatial structure that is in the promenade area that is overlooking uh jerusalem from the south and this year they, they announced the discovery of an ancient toilet. There's a few of these that have been discovered from this same time period, from Hezekiah's period onwards, one in the city of David, one in Lachish, and some elsewhere. And what's interesting about this one, I think, is they kind of found and excavated the pit as well that was associated with it. And inside there they found all these perfume bottles and ointments and things that would have helped the aroma, uh, as, as you'd expect the need uh, to arise. Uh, so they, they had all those in, in this kind of tank uh, for this toilet, and what they brought out was only people that were um, 
quite well to do would have had this personal type bathroom in their own house. And, and so I think that's an interesting discovery from here uh, in Jerusalem. They call it, they called it the so-called uh, commissioner's palace, um, which again would have been uh, dated to sometime around Hezekiah, perhaps just after or just before. It's, it's kind of hard to know uh, exactly when, and, and that's the seventh century end of the seventh, uh, start of the seventh century BCE. Another discovery here, number six. Do you have something to add to that one? Uh, nope. Great. Okay, number six. This is a discovery related to a portion of Jerusalem's eastern wall, a fortification wall of the city around the same time of Hezekiah, perhaps even a little bit earlier as when it was constructed. They believe they do not have the date yet for the construction of the eastern wall of the city of David. The city, ancient city of David, of course, is the original Jebusite city that David conquered. But then later, not in David's time, not even in Solomon's time, but later they expanded it probably a little bit further down into the valley. And that's where it looks like this, this, well, this where this part of this wall was discovered. Now, part of it was discovered uh, 50 or 60 years ago and another part even before then. And so you had about a missing 40 meters of city wall uh, on the east. And this is the portion that was discovered this just this past year, connecting about 200, uh, 200 meter stretch uh, of the eastern city wall of Jerusalem. And, and uh, we do have a little interesting take on this discovery when it came out at the time. I think you noticed how a lot of people were talking about how the, the fact that a, a part of the eastern wall uh, was discovered like this kind of proves against the biblical account, which is just really a hasty reading <laughs> of the biblical account. Uh, as most of the problems that come up when somebody says that archaeology disproves the Bible, as we spend most of our time sh showing uh, on our website and on this podcast, is that that stems from a hasty reading, an incorrect reading of the biblical text. Nevertheless, this is a a good, dis great discovery, and I think uh, this excavation is actually going to come out. Discoveries from this excavation will come out in later numbers. But that was number six: the further discovery of Jerusalem's eastern wall from the leading up to the period of Jerusalem's destruction. Uh, yeah. Okay, on to number five. Then this is the Dead Sea Scroll that was discovered in the Cave of Horrors, uh, the quite terrifyingly named Cave of Horrors. Initially, this cave, well, this cave is uh, in uh, the Dead Sea region, not too far away from the Dead Sea. It's a cave that's located on a sheer cliff, um, and archaeologists actually had to rappel, I think, 80, 80 meters down to be able to get into this cave, which that's modern archaeologists. So imagine back in the day when you've got these Jewish refugees trying to get into this cave, hiding in there. Uh, it was a cave that was occupied variously throughout history by refugees, but most especially from during the Bar Kokhba revolt. And you had these refugees hiding in there, and I think it was in the 60s that they discovered the bodies of them, mm. uh, hence why it's called the Cave of Horrors. Evidently, a Roman legion had heard about their presence there. They had encamped at the top of this plateau and essentially trapped the Jews inside, and they succumb to thirst or starvation uh, but but this past year archaeologists working there uh, mo a lot of the remains have already been been uncovered but uh, archaeologists went back and they discovered uh, several 2000 year old items um, including some 80 fragments of a bible scroll containing preserved verses from the books of Nahum and Zechariah 
And so this was from a single Bible scroll, a minor prophet scroll, including the other, the, the other prophets. But the pieces they found of it were from Nahum and Zechariah. And they were from the Greek version mm. of, uh, at this point, what was a Greek translation of these texts. So it wasn't ancient Hebrew. It's in, it wasn't it's in ancient Hebrew. But the names of God in the scroll were still in their original Hebrew mm. form that they, they left them in Hebrew form during that period. And uh, the Israeli Antiquities Authority, their experts, were able to determine there were two different scribes that produced this scroll. Uh, So they were written in Greek, names of God in Hebrew. And I think, if I recall, the content of those fragments that were preserved actually relate quite incredibly to the horrifying scene that they would have been a part of like uh, talking about the horrors of rock, rocks falling and that, and that type thing. Mm. Um, but that was the main discovery from this place, and some other uh, smaller items were found there as well, including, I believe, history's oldest discovered basket. So you can look up the article dedicated to that on our website if you like, uh, but that's the Cave of Horrors Dead Sea Scroll at number five. Uh, and then number four is Solomonic Purple. Yeah, I'll take this one. Both of Chris and I have written about this, and I kind of commented on it at the time. And uh, he's written on our, for our first issue of Let the Stone Speak that should be coming out mid to late January. He's written an article about King Solomon and empire and the um, just some of the everyday proofs of, of this kingdom uh, related not necessarily to monumental structures, but for everyday items. And I haven't read his piece yet, so that was at least the blurb that I saw uh, pre, uh, pre-writing. And he, he mentions this, at least. This is something that was discovered at Timnah, right down there in southern Israel, close to Eilat. It's probably about 40 kilometers. That's from my memory. Uh, maybe a little bit less from Eilat. And what's so awesome about this area, as from the Dead Sea, is you have it, a really dry climate that allows artifacts, items, especially organic materials such as writing, uh, and or in this case fabric to be preserved in really mint condition this time going back 3,000 years and and what they found here in a big slag heap basically the trash from the production of the copper mines down there from the dating to the time periods of David and Solomon uh, is that you find this beautiful dyed fabric using the royal purple that the Bible describes over and over and over and over again, Tyrian purple or, or Phoenician purple, basically. Some people believe the Phoenicians got their name from this, this type of dye. It has different colors that can, can be created from the murex snail that has been uh, harvested from the Mediterranean. Uh, they do have them, some of this down in, in the Red Sea, but they know specifically that this murex snail that produced this dye came from the Mediterranean, so a long way to travel indicating again some type of statehood function uh the fact that you have this purple dye down there um but you've got the purple all the way to blue the argumum is the what i think what the bible uses to describe it and so we have from three thousand years ago fabric probably worn by those people that were working the uh the mines probably not maybe the everyday guy or maybe the overseer it's not as that we don't know a hundred percent uh however it's it's an amazing uh, discovery because it doesn't actually doesn't just back up the biblical text that you have this from three thousand years ago as the Bible describes, but that the people could create this and that 
they could create the dye itself. They had the technology to do it, to do the various colors. The way the thread is wo woven even is, is pretty remarkable for the period. At least we, we, we think that. Obviously, they didn't think it was remarkable from the period. They were just doing what, <laughs> what they did. Um, but again, just another, another beautiful relation from the Bible uh, to something from 3,000 years ago, specifically the period of, of David and Solomon. Maybe you've got something to add. Sure. And yeah, you'll have to check out our um, first issue of Let the Stone Speak. Um, there'll be more information on this, but uh, I think it's just really interesting. You've got this specifically dating within the 10th century BC. This is, the Bible talks about uh, purple and purple being used, but this is actually, this constitutes the, uh, the earliest discovery of this by some 1000 years, the earliest example that has been pulled out of the ground. Um, and just to give you some kind of, uh, picture of it compared to the later Roman times and accounts, I think at that point in time, uh, during that period, it was worth some three times its weight in gold. Wow. So when you, it, it for me, it kind of brings a new perspective to that verse about Solomon making silver so common that it was as, as if it was stones in the streets. Well, this isn't silver. But you've got something that that's more valuable than silver. That's more valuable, <laughs> or at least it was in the Roman times, and you've got it in a slag heap in a mining community. Right. Like, what kind of society was this, and what kind of people were there? And it's not just this piece of fabric, as as my article will bring out. There are other pieces of fabric, beautiful uh, reds, blues, orange, and black um, patterned pieces of fabric from this period. You mentioned how it came from the uh, Mediterranean area. You've got so many other artifacts that, that I had only just come to, to know about from this area, but that were brought specifically from the Mediterranean and from even Jer the Jerusalem area. And this attests to what the Bible says in Second Chronicles 18. It talks about David conquering this specific Edomite area and then becoming uh, part of David's kingdom, servants to David. And so, but you, you can't believe that because that's chronicles, and that's written 500 <laughs> years after King David. So, what would they know, huh? Yeah, yeah. So some people say. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, really interesting discoveries there. I mean, even fish bones that were found in Timna that that were the diet of the workers. The the Gulf of Aqaba is right there. Those fish didn't come from there. Right. They came from the Mediterranean Sea. The horse feed. They were able to determine that that feed came from the Jerusalem area. I mean, there's some incredible discoveries alongside the purple. The purple being the, the chief one, but All some right. incredible discoveries there. Well, I think uh, I want to read your article. Maybe I'll get it. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get an advanced copy this week before it goes, goes to press yeah, in a week and a half. The, so <laughs> In the editing process. So, so yeah, we'll I look see. forward to reading that. Okay. Okay, on to number three, the alphabetic script. This is from researchers uh, in Austria and Israel, a joint effort. They revealed the discovery of an inked potsherd called an ostracon uh, from Lachish, uh, the site of Lachish, famous many years later, nearly a thousand years later for the Assyrian siege that took place there. Uh, by Sennacherib, but this one, this artifact dates to the 15th century BCE. So if, you, if you're familiar with the biblical chronology, we've got articles on this on the website as well. This is the time period that the Israelites were entering into Canaan, entering into the Promised Land. So this is an 
uh, Ostracon. It's an inked potsherd, and it it's it's written with an alphabetical script, not with the hieroglyphs or cuneiform. And so this constitutes the earliest discovered use of alphabetical script in uh, the Levant. Um, previously, the earliest script dated to earliest confirmed use of the script dated to the 12th century. So when we talk about alphabetical script, this is the script that you and I use. 70% uh, of the world uses it in some form. Uh, and it's uh, most, most uh, generally spread from uh, the Greek usage of it, but then the Greeks themselves re received it from the Hebrew Phoenicians. And our last issue of the magazine brought that out. Uh, so here you have the earliest use of the alphabetical script uh, proven in Israel, 15th century BCE. So what this does is put paid to theories that it was somehow brought in from Egyptian power and control during, say, the 13th century BCE, but somehow it was brought into the land a little bit earlier. Now, we know that originally the very earliest examples are from Egypt and uh, most notably from the Sinai region. Mm -hmm. It's called Proto-Sinaitic uh, as, the, as the first form of this alphabet. And quite remarkably, you find it in slave communities, Semitic slave communities. Mm -hmm. And so there's a really cool link to the biblical account there uh, and to the Israelite, uh, what, what must have been Israelite use of it. And then you see that carried over around the time of the exodus and entry into Canaan uh, during the 15th century BCE. And so this is, of course, important for the writing of the Bible. I mean, so many people, as we've even joked about before, real, they believe that, well, if writing wasn't around back then, how could these these histories or these stories be recorded accurately if they were just passed down by word of mouth or something like that? And so you do have a big push by anti-Bible scholars to make writing, alphabetical writing, really late. Uh, but here we have, again, I think a really early example dating to the time period that the Israelites came in, not to say that this was necessarily 100% the Israelites that were using this script, but nevertheless, it was there, it was around, it was in the land uh, when, when you know, Joshua was there. And so these, the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, I mean, discoveries like this show that it can be written down by an eyewitness, it can be written down by a contemporary of that society, written down most accurately in that way, and then, of course, edited uh, by later scholars as even we edit older works to make them understandable for the people that are alive today. So it really is important to, to show that the Bible could have definitely been written back then, that alphabetical script was around to do that. Right, yeah, a lecture we went to recently uh, featured Professor Israel Finkelstein, and he based a lot of his, uh, his message about when writing became uh, used in, in the land of Judah, in this territory, and based on Ostraka, plural for Ostrakon, uh, he dated that to uh, the end of the 8th century, based on a lack of earlier discoveries. But, but as we were talking about during that lecture, so many known and existing discoveries were left out. And here's an example of an Ostracon. Uh, if you're going to just look at Ostraka, going back to the 15th century BCE. Right. So in the round, you see the use of not just writing, but the specific alphabetical script that the Israelites uh, used and would use uh, 
dating right back to the 15th century BC. So really cool discovery there. And on to number two, I'll take this one and leave the last one, the number one discovery for Brent. Number two is Jerusalem's earthquake and piglet. So I'll start out with the piglet. They're both connected <laughs> discoveries. So this is uh, related to the same archaeology work uh, as discovered the east wall of Jerusalem, our point six. So what they discovered in a small room in south in the southeastern port part of the city of David was a collapsed room structure and they found beneath the collapsed wall a piglet and not just any kind of piglet remains but an articulated piglet so this is a complete skeleton uh, so the piglet was evidently by by the remains of it it was alive at the time it was crushed by these falling walls and they were able to determine that uh, that it was intended for the pot, that it was intended to be eaten. And uh, they were able to determine that because they found a lot of other butchered animals, butchery marks, butchery tools in this area. So The Bible must be incorrect then. Right, yeah, that was a lot of the headlines <laughs> that came out after this discovery was made, this announcement was made. What? There's a piglet in... Uh, in the city of David during the 8th century BC, the stated to the, uh, the 8th century. And so a lot of the headlines came out saying, well, this must have been before the biblical kosher laws existed then, because otherwise there wouldn't have been a piglet. Because the Israelites always obey the law. <laughs> Right, and a lot of a lot of people, uh, commentators, even not connected to archaeology in America, they were like, "Come on, people, have you read the Bible? Right. That the was Bible so, that is a book of disobedience." This was actually quite refreshing to see some of the comments, even in like the Times of Israel, directly underneath that. This is the headline they're going with that. Oh, kosher laws are in question now because we found of eating pig, and like, you know, these were just ordinary people reading this article and be like, uh, "Hello, this actually, you know, this happens." often uh, right. inside the Bible, and even perhaps even more specifically during this time period. Exactly. And so what we, what we brought out with our article, we try and give the honest biblical perspective, and we pointed to specific references specific to this period in the Bible, uh, prophecies by the, uh, the prophet Isaiah talking about people in Jerusalem eating swine's flesh. And... Uh, I've got one uh, here that we can have a look at, if I can get to it. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 17 says, They that sanctify themselves, talking about these uh, Judahites, they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens be behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, or that means destroyed together. These people who are doing these abominations, eating swine's flesh, shall be consumed together, destroyed together, says the Eternal. Of course, Isaiah is a contemporary this time of the discovery. Right. Isaiah is right from the middle of the, the 8th century toward the end of the 8th century. And so what helps highlight that verse as well is you've got some kind of some kind of destruction that happened uh, at this time period as well that, that kills this piglet alive. And you can see just very graphically the remains of this piglet as it was about to be butchered. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows, maybe it was to be that same day, maybe a day or two or a week later, in this pile of destruction remains. 
And so at the time that the piglet discovery was released, uh, the reporting on the destruction was kind of vague and the excavators had talked about how there's no known um, uh, military conflagration that happened in Judah at this time period in the very middle of the 8th, cent uh, 8th century. And so what we did in our article was pointed people to the Amos earthquake, Amos's earthquake, which happened during this period um, and pointed out that it most likely uh, could be identified with, with this earthquake. There's some hints about it in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Amos famously talks about it. That's why it's commonly referred to as Amos's earthquake. And then that leads into the second part of this discovery. A couple weeks after we published that, the same archaeologists came out saying, this is the first ever uh, evidence of Amos's earthquake discovered in right. Jerusalem, which was... Who knows? Maybe they read our article. Maybe they didn't. But maybe it was they kind of a cool stretch out their discoveries. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Who knows? But it was a pretty cool um, bit of corroboration there. And one of the main points that they're able to tell that this was earthquake destruction, and they found a fair bit of destruction in this area: shifted walls, collapsed walls, including the wall that collapsed on this piglet. One of the big evidences was that there's no burning. There's mm -hmm. no military remains. No arrowheads. Type, the type of uh, remains you would typically find after a, a military conflagration. So it was pretty clear that this relates to many other such uh, evidences of collapse in other cities around Jerusalem dating specifically to this time period, to Amos's earthquake. All right, so now number one. Number one, this is the Gideon or Jerubal inscription. This is the first time ever that an inscription... Uh, of the name of a biblical period judge has ever been found in an archaeological excavation. Of course, we don't really recognize this figure, Jerubal, that was the inscription, um, but he, this is just another name, a lesser-known name for the judge Gideon. Gideon, of course, was somebody that looks in the Bible to be more active generally in, in the areas towards the Jezreel Valley and north, uh, northern Israel. And so you do have some people that would say that this isn't or can't be uh, the Gideon from the Bible, the other name for the Gideon from the Bible. However, when this discovery was made, just putting together a lot of, let's say, circumstantial evidence does definitely, and with the biblical account, does definitely lend weight that you cannot discount that this was actually the Gideon from the Bible, the other name for it. This was a a, uh, a ink on pottery inscription that was found at Kirbet, or Kirbet Arai, which is, uh, I think, four or five miles to the west of Lachish. And this was excavated by Yossi Garfinkel of Hebrew University and also Saar Ganor of uh, the Antiquities Authority. I had the chance to actually to be out there on site the day that this discovery was made. And we did a podcast talking to uh, Professor Garfinkel about it at the time. And again, we can talk, you can go back and listen to that if you like. But here are some of those points that really do show that it could be uh, the Gideon from the Bible. Most people would, a lot of people came out afterwards, even epigraphists saying that this was most likely not even Jeroboam because the first letter is kind of partly there. However, a lot of other <laughs> epigraphists said no way. Jeroboam is the most obvious reading of it. And and I think what's what's important, even if it isn't necessarily 100% that it's Jeroboam, again, this is the only time that this name has ever been found, written down anywhere outside of the Bible. And the Bible puts it in the period of the judges, and this inscription 
based on the dating of when it came out of the ground and the context of it, doesn't date from the 7th century or the 6th century when these things were supposedly written down. It actually dates from the 12th century as well, 11th century in that area, the period of the judges. And so that's one of our points. I mean, this Ostracon definitely does date to the end of the 12th century, the same time around that Gideon was alive. Jer Jerobal as fame he spread all the way across israel as it says in the bible so just because he was more active in the north doesn't mean they wouldn't have that name of a judge of a hero being talked about uh, further down in the south uh, jeroboam's family also included 70 sons so if they're going to mention the fact that they were the son of jeroboam as some of them really did or the son of gideon as that was their claim to fame and even decided they would be trying to make themselves king because of that um, it makes sense that this name would become quite prolific uh, throughout Israel as well. And then we also link the Gideon accounts to Kerbet Arai because the Bible talks about in Judges 4, 6 verse 4 that the Midianite oppression, who were the people that Gideon was trying to overcome, that spread all the way down to the Philistine territories all the way down in the south, right where this area, uh, or right in this area of Kerbet uh, Arai as well. And finally, that this name Jeroboam is, is really extremely rare. Again, just the Bible, and just in this potsherd, both from exactly the same time period as you'd expect. So this is why we definitely name it, I think, to the number one. Again, looking at it from another side, another angle, even if it isn't Jeroboam from the Bible, we know the name was used at that time. But even from the fact that we have an ostracon from the 12th century now, uh, you, you mentioned the one from the 15th century that happened in Lachish. I think there's some others perhaps from Lachish, maybe from the, from the 13th or 14th. I can't remember. There is another discovery of, of uh, ancient script. And there, then we go to the 10th century and we have four inscriptions in, in, the, in the southern, uh, in the land of Judah from that time period, 10th century going into Jerusalem. Uh, I think there's some at Lachish. There's obviously Kirat Kaiafer Ostrakhan. And so here you have one in southern Judah, again, uh, Phoenician Hebrew script being used in that interceding 200 years where we had this uh, area of undiscovered, yet undiscovered Hebrew script. So in many ways, for many reasons, this is our number one discovery. What do you think, Chris? Any other comment? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the, really, you could reorder a few of these uh, finds in the middle here, uh, however you like, but I really think this this is a clear number one here. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was characterized the first ever judge whose name is corroborated in the archaeological record. So as we've got on Watch Jerusalem, uh, I've got a short series going through the accounts of the judges. And we do have a lot of evidence for the settings of the judges in various geopolitical situations. But this is, in terms of the name of a judge, uh, this is the first ever time that a judge has been discovered uh, on an inscription like that. So a really exciting discovery uh, and exciting to see Professor Garfunkel's name come up again. Uh, we've cited him uh, quite a few times and there are additional discoveries, one of which that, that haven't made the top, the top 10 list but could just as easily have been, one of which was from Professor Garfinkel uh, relating to the Lachish ramp, siege ramp. Mm -hmm. uh, he had some new research about how that ramp was built that really aligns with some of the other biblical details about the, the pouring of the ramp, how a ramp could be poured uh, at that point in time. So 
another big discovery as well, uh, being the Eliakim Buller mm-hmm. discovery, which you yourself have written about. It's not from this year. Otherwise, it would have made the top 10 list for sure. But um, that's that's one that really wasn't reported. Yeah, in it, was, mainstream it was just media. hidden. It was hidden um, in a journal article from a cup from 2019. Right. <laughs> and it just no popular article came out about it, which is kind of shocking to me, uh, which is why we made a big hoopla about it. In, and I think two issues ago of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. Right. So it was good to give that some coverage finally. So it seemed like that came out this year, but that was actually from a couple of years ago. But do go to the website and check these things out. Uh, I just had a quick count through. I, I, I gave some stats similar to this on last year's program, but in our archaeology and history section, so our, our website is divided into three main parts as it stands currently. Uh, news, archaeology, and history. But in our archaeology and history um, uh, uh, parts of the website, we've got a good 150 articles uh, from this past year alone on archaeology and history. So there's just about any kind of subject, if you're interested in, in a figure from the Hebrew Bible or a certain war or this or that, you can type it in and chances are... Yeah, we have a search bar there as well it. that can make those things more easy for you. And, and a lot of people are availing themselves of that. I get emails, you know, once a week or so of people saying, I go to your website, use it as a resource uh, for whatever studies they're doing. Um, and so it is a valuable resource. Again, use that search bar, type in a name, see what's been discovered. We have been trying to, and you have especially been trying to go through the biblically significant discoveries of the past 150 years and making sure we have some type of comment on that so that people are aware of just how much has been discovered and is out there. And and as this year proved, there's a lot that that can still be discovered in the land of Israel, a lot to come out in the future. Okay, that's the top 10 for 2021. Thanks very much for helping us out, Chris. No problem. Thank you, Brent.